Today on the Low City on the Sideline Dad Podcast, episode number 92. We're going to talk about what it's like to be separated from your children, domestic abuse, and being wrongly accused of something you did not do. This is a very um, adult-oriented content, so it's not really suitable for children's ears. Would be My guest today would be Demetrius Angels, although with Jim Angels, author of the book, The Ottawa Way, The Violent Outbreak in Canada. Next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, my name is Joe Foley. I really want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. This is the first time on the podcast. Welcome. This is a podcast about a journey to discovery. What I mean is trying to figure out this stuff, man, one day at a time. And I really do appreciate you being here. I really do. Next up, I just, my next up, my guest, Demetrius Angels. We're going to talk about his book today and some of the traumatic events in his life that changed his life and his family forever. We talk about some really hard topics. And like I said, I gave him the, in the beginning of the show, I gave kind of like, you know, suitable for Deltas only. But it's true. This is a really, really tragic story about a man who went through some tough times, his family, and, and I don't want to, it's kind of like a loss of somebody's life too at the same time. It's really tragic family. It's really a tragic family story about kind of like times you live in now. Demetri shared a lot of interesting stories about what happened to him and what it was like being separated from his children, being wrongly accused of something. It's a very, very interesting information and story. Jim Demetrius shares. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Joseph. Uh, like I said, um, <clears throat> my name is uh, officially uh, Demetrius Angelus, and I was named after my uh, father's uh, father. It's a tradition where you always name your first four kids after your grandparents. And But everybody calls me Jim. Jim Angelus is fine. And so and I, did, I, I kept the tradition, and, and I named you know my two kids after my parents. I was born in Canada, but, uh, you know, in 1976, 1977, I was relocated uh, to Queens. Uh, so I went from Montreal to Queens, New York, because of the political instability going on at the time against um, recent immigrants and their Canadian-born children. And so uh, I was born in Canada. My parents were not. They, were, they came from war-torn Europe. You know, uh, they escaped, uh, dealt with the Nazi invasions of their countries. And then, you know, and so, we, we, you know, we sort of have a resilience to wherever we go in the world sort of keep fighting and keep moving on. So in New York, uh, you know, I moved into the neighborhood of um, Mario Cuomo and his son, and the Cuomo family, actually went to uh, school with his younger son, Chris, who's now on CNN. And, you know, the current governor of New York now is Andrew Cuomo. So, you know, I, you know, a middle-class neighborhood. I went to a school in Manhattan, high school, South mm-hmm. Academy. And uh, after that, my mom decided it was best to come back to Canada for higher education because it was more affordable. And, because, and also, because I was born there, my education would be subsidized by the government. So I went and got, you know, a bachelor's, two college diplomas, a bachelor's degree, and two master's degree in administration. So one in public administration with a minor in political science, and the other one in the business, oh, sorry, health administration with a minor in business, sociology, and, um, and psychology. And I quickly got recruited to work for the Canadian government up there in the public health department. And I have a couple of, uh, you know, books under my belt. 
you know, one on emergency response, which sort of came out three months after 9-11. So it was very, very useful in terms of as a reference source, a referral source. And also um, another book which compares the healthcare systems in the United States, Canada, the UK, France, Sweden, Australia. What a little bit more about your story. What happened in, in your struggle as a father? Well, um, as I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I, I wrote it. I wrote a book about my experience and how it affects me and my kids and my parents. And I called it The Ottawa Way, Viral Outbreak in Canada's Capital. Now, it's not a virus like we have virus now, but viral in the sense that it's the way people think. It's the way people think that causes others to suffer uh, needlessly. In my case, I was wrongfully uh, arrested and convicted uh, for the murder of my wife and mother of my children, who I was divorcing at the time. Uh, we were going through difficulties. We were having the affair, and, and then she didn't want to end the affair after I, I sort of brought her to, you know, our priest to sort of find a solution. And, and she didn't want to mean that. And she also, she wasn't taking the, her, her, her responsibility as a mother or her relationship with the kids as a mother seriously. But on, on this one particular day, she and her lover had came to uh, try to kidnap our three-year-old son and take his passport and leave the country. And my response was to call the police right away, who didn't take my response seriously because here I am, sort of a man, asking help against, you know, his wife. And but even it didn't matter, it didn't matter that, his, uh, you know, my wife was with somebody else. And so, and so, um, you know, I was left to deal with matters on my own because the police did not want to get involved. So I brought it to our priest, tried to find a resolution. She didn't want to work on the marriage or, or her responsibilities as a mother. And so uh, she was left with no other choice but to go through a divorce, which I had initiated. And she didn't respond well to that. And then just things got very ugly because she didn't want to go to court to determine child custody and she didn't order division of assets. And so and we're forced to live with each other because I couldn't get a restraining order on her. And, and what she, and she was very, being very aggressive to me and then more, more importantly to my, our daughter and our son. And so I'm forced to live with her until we go to court for the divorce, which was scheduled for July the 8th of 2008. How old was your kids at the time of the, this whole thing going on? So my son was three and a half years old. And my, son, my daughter had just turned eight. That, so the attempted abduction happened five days before her eighth birthday. And I, did not, I waited to file the divorce till after her birthday party because she, we had organized a big party. I wanted to make sure she was happy, not let it affect her. And only filed for divorce about a week after, after her birthday party. So she did not respond to it, to the divorce with our children's mother, because she didn't want to go to court. She wanted automatically, automatic full custody of the children. And, you know, the state of assets, plus, you know, me to pay her for her child support and alimony, even though she was making more money than me. So what happened was I ended up having her subpoena to go to court for the divorce. She did not respond well to that, and she became increasingly violent, but yet still no help from uh, the police. Uh, you know, my divorce lawyer didn't even want to help me file a restraining order because she, my, my, my lawyer, meaning she, was not comfortable with the idea of separating the children from their mother. And so here we are stuck, and I, I would make I was able to stuck to, to go to court until July the eighth and make my plea in front of a judge for a restraining order and you know supervise a visit for the kids given the children's behavior towards them until we find a long term solution. What was the toll on you as a father and watching your kids and you know, trying to protect your kids and going through the situation? It was very difficult because I was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place where my priority now was to ensure the safety and well-being of my kids 
And at the same time, I didn't want to break the law or break protocol to get him out of the house and take him somewhere without permission uh, from the court. I was told I was forced to stay there with the kids so that the kids' mom would, you know, wouldn't be, you know, separated from the children. And so it was very hard on me, very cool. But I don't. But I always, I always kept very cool, very calm about it. Uh, you know, my priority was to always be there for the kids, regardless. You know, and and I did my best. I did my best to make sure they were okay. And since I was a primary parent, I had to be in their lives. I was the one getting up in the morning, making sure they were fed. You know, they had clean clothes to go to school and daycare. And I dropped them off at school and daycare and picked them up after work. And I was the one paying for all their expenses and make sure they were well fed and helped them with their homework, my daughter stuff. And so I had to be there. I was a primary parent. And so not only was it in that a question of making sure the kids were well cared for, but also to be protected from their mother and her lover. I still kept focused. And that was my responsibility, and I couldn't do anything to jeopardize that because in the end, and I knew the kids would suffer if I overreacted, if I or if I just decided to follow everybody's suggestion or opinion or you know instruction, just move and leave the kids behind with their mother. And I could I couldn't do that. I had a conscience, and I couldn't really do that. I had to stay and make sure the kids were taken care of. Well, it's interesting you say that too. Everybody, when you go through that process, I've been I'm I'm into a divorce myself, so I understand. I haven't been in your situation, but I've been through a divorce myself, and everybody seems to have an opinion what you should do. It's really up to you yeah. to do that, what you think is right. Yes, exactly. And, and that's, that's the whole point of my book is, you know, to every guy who's out there, you know, you have to be the father. You want to be and the father. You have to be and need to be. This, this is about your kids. At the end of the day, it's about your child, children. It's not about you. It's not about, you know, what's going, what's going on between you and their mother. It's about you and your children. It, it can have a negative effect so, too. Yeah, a negative effect in your in your health and personal well being too. It does. It does. And I'll be honest, it does. I mean, uh, it's not easy. But you, have, you know, in, in today's world, fathers have to be different than the way our fathers and grandfathers used to be. And so, you see, in my book, it's not about me and my relationship with my kids, but the relationship I had with my own father and how I was not really happy with that relationship, and I wanted to be a different kind of father. Yeah, it was interesting, too. You mentioned that. What kind of relationship did you have with your dad? My father really didn't have uh, the kind of relationship that I would have liked. Uh, yes, he was self-employed, and he had to spend a long hours, you know, networking and socializing. And, and, and so the thing, I think, as an adult, looking back, I see that there were some choices that he made that he, you know, that was not really the best. And in terms of for, for our relationship as father and son, you know, he, he didn't have to go drinking with his buddies. Or, you know what I mean? Or he didn't have to go and, and explore new um, business venture ideas when he was already doing well in the current one that he had. And also he had a, uh, you know, he had, um, everybody everybody has their vices. And, and, when, and when, a, when a man has a vice or addiction or whatever you want to call it, it interferes with your relationship with your child. And with my, my, my father, yes, okay, he gave up the drinking and he gave up, you know, the smoking but then he couldn't give up the womanizing. He would rather spend time with a woman, another woman, as opposed to spend time with me and my brother. I mean, that also yeah. makes you, um, hmm. I was thinking about being a dad myself. I mean, I, I really didn't have, uh, I mean, my father relationship was kind of strained myself. It makes you want to be a better dad, but I think you, we lose out. I mean, I, I can understand you losing out in that stuff you need to know to be a father. And you felt like you lose something, lose something. Yeah. Uh, I was a fortunate in a way because I was sort of in the health field, but also psychology and sociology. And so 
you know, I had uh, the theoretical background on what type of parenting system or what, 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 parent, what way of parenting methods work, you know, in the best interest of the children. And so I had that. So I had that theoretical, but I never had the actual experience myself. I never had the actual practice. practice. But, um, you know, people who knew me or saw me with my kids saw that I were applying these new techniques which were always proven to be beneficial for the children. And so, you know, when, when the media got involved after my arrest, uh, you know, <laughs> In the beginning, the people that they spoke to always said I was a great guy, a conscientious father, somebody who would never kill their than the children's mother in front of them, you know. But it's not the media wasn't interested in that. And I even had when I was waiting in jail to get out on bail, I had a friend tell you know the media is going nuts. They're trying to find any dirt on you, and they can't. And when they hear all this good stuff, you're a good worker at work, you're a good father, you're a good you know husband. So they don't want to hear that. They they, they keep telling us you know. We heard all that. Don't you have any dirt guys? You know, how can this how can this guy be in jail now for murdering, you know, his, his the mother of his kids, you know, and you're saying that he's such a great guy, you know, a great father. Even till the day of my trial, you have these ugly reports about me being a dastardly dad who planned all this from the very beginning, you know, you know, and, 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 and it was very heartbreaking, very heartbreaking to to read that when the reality was you know, it's not true. What interesting too is um why did the media spin it that way? Why was it so um, vicious to you? Well, what was happening in Canada and actually around the world before it even hit the United States was the Me Too movement. You know, the Me Too movement was always present in Europe. And I recently found out in China and even in, in Canada where women were made to believe, you know, regardless of what the circumstances are, whatever we're saying, whatever the evidence shows, they were the victims and the men were the perpetrators. And so regardless of what the evidence showed in court and the media saw it, they just said, you know what, no, we're ignoring it. We're ignoring the facts, we're ignoring the evidence, we're ignoring you know, the circumstances, and we're saying this guy is a bad guy because now we have a dead woman on our hands. You know, It doesn't matter if the autopsy report was inconclusive. Okay, He has injuries all over his body. You know, black guy, you know, busted lips, scratches all over his face and his, and his torso, and a penis that's bleeding because that's how she started to fight. It doesn't matter. It was my blood all over the apartment. I was responsible. And I heard different reasons for it. And I, I was curious. Yeah. People thought because you didn't leave. When the police officers, you know, was there to stop the abduction of your child, you should have left and left the kids with their mother and her lover. You know, well, I said, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have forced her to pull, go to court for the divorce. You don't want to go to court for the divorce, just give her what she wants. And you hear all these different suggestions, and, and because I didn't do any of that, I was automatically to blame for what happened. How did that make you feel, being uh, blamed for that happened and going to jail? How did how did that, on your, your mind and your body, just how did you deal with it? Well, I was in constant disbelief. I mean, I just was, I was you know, a shocking thing, one after the other after the other. From the time it got, I finally were able. To, from the time it took me, my lawyer to finally convince me that I deserved to be released on bail, which took eight months, it's ridiculous. And then, you know, the fact that the social workers were now not even waiting for the outcome of the trial to say that I was responsible, and they were going to grab my kids and start the process for putting them through divorce. And and that, that, that instead of letting my family or members of my community, my Greek community, could get involved getting these kids, they rather put them with strangers in a small little town outside of the city, you know. And it was like, oh my God, you know, what's what's going on? So here I am, and then 
they sent me to trial, obviously, and then the uh, the prosecutor. I had uh, I I did my research on her, and it bothered me that she was also and it should have been the prosecutor. She was also the coach, uh, the co-chair, co-chair person of a very influential lobby group that you know goes to the government and demands laws, stricter laws on domestic violence against women. You know, and so I found a conflict of interest. Well, I'm going to have this prosecutor who's going to try and tell me that you know what proves jury to the jury that I'm guilty. But at the same time, she has an ulterior motive to show people who support her that we need tougher laws against men who uh, uh, they claim are violent towards women. And so she, 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 she was very good at what she did. She you know, managed to get eight women on the jury and four older guys on the jury. And it was, I, just, I just said, oh, holy crap, I'm going to lose this trial. Especially the way the the political tension, the tension you have between men and women going on, you know, there was no way. I didn't think, I didn't think. I was hopeful that, you know, they were going to look at the evidence and respect my rights, my legal rights, but they didn't. And when they came back and said that, you know, I was guilty of murder, I, I was flabbergasted. Because now here I am being sentenced to life in prison. I lost everything in my life, everything that was important to me. My kids, you know, uh, my freedom, my job with the government and the public health department, all of that was gone, even my good name and reputation. And the media had a field day with that. So I, I, I'm, const- I'm always in constant disbelief. And so they finally sent me to the worst, worst prison in Canada, which is pretty much the equivalent of Alcatraz. And now they just shut it down because they realized that the race was so bad in terms of the living conditions were so bad, the people that were there were so bad that they shut it down. And thankfully I got out of there because I wouldn't know where they would put me after they shut it down because my lawyers were able to convince the Court of Appeal that I was not given a fair trial. And so I was ordered a retrial. But still, you know, it was a very, very stressful time in my life because it was like money being thrown out the window for the first uh, three years because nobody wanted to stand up for you. Nobody wanted to believe you. And, but you have, you have to keep telling yourself, I got to move forward. I got to move forward for the sake of my kids. You know, I want to show them that, you know, I'm not the kind of guy they, they, you know, they were told that I am or, you know, that I killed her mother. When in reality, she died of a rare heart condition, you know, common among her age group and her ethnicity, okay, that she died of a heart attack. Those don't automatically show up on the, on the autopsy report. How does it make you feel when nobody, nobody listened to you nobody cared to hear your side of the story? Nobody wanted to pay attention to what you were saying? It was very, very um, hard on me, very stressful. And I couldn't find anyone to sympathize. And even my own parents were saying, look, we're losing we're in a lost battle here. You know, let's just make a plea deal with the prosecutor and move on with it. And I said, well, no, that's not right. If, you know, I'm not going to accept a plea deal for manslaughter when I didn't kill her. And, and then what are my kids going to think? What is everybody going to think? When the reality is, you know, you know, you know and I know. My mother is a nurse. was a nurse. Saw the results. She knows I didn't do it. And yet they're telling me we're in a lost battle here because of the political situation to give up. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't. And I was arguing with my father about it, too, who felt it was wasted money to continue fighting. I said, no. And, 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 you know, and when I told people, when I told other people about, you know, it doesn't matter who you say or how you say it, but the support wasn't there. The compassion wasn't there. And, you know, for example, I, I remember one woman telling me, well, now you know how my mother and grandmother felt back in the day when they were beaten up by their husbands and nobody believed them and nobody cared. And so it was more about what they went through in the past as opposed to what I'm going through in the, in the present. And it was very discouraging, very heartbreaking. 
But, you know, when I was sent to that prison, it, it, it killed me. It killed me. We were locked up for 24 hours a day. Here I am, okay, serial killers and serial rapists and child molesters, drug traffickers, you know, uh, organized mobsters, wife beaters and wife killers, I mean, real ones, honor killers and terrorists. And here I am stuck with them 24 hours a day. We're only released, you know, for meals on the yard. We want to go to the yard, you know, for uh, some kind of fresh air or some sort. But I'm stuck with them. And, and here I am with these vile criminals when I shouldn't be. Okay, sort of bothers your mind, and, and, and the fact that you're locked up most of the time, it withers your body. But you know, when, when they told me that they're going to take my kids away and give them away as puppies, like some of the puppies to strangers, when we had my family there waiting for them, when we had members of my community waiting for them, that's when they killed me. They, they destroyed my soul. My soul was dead. And, but still, I had to find it within myself. But don't let them kill your soul. You have to keep fighting to prove that you're innocent. And try some way to get your kids back into your life. Well, interesting too. Well, I'm being in prison. What kind of coping skills did you learn? Because I mean, you're, you're there and, you, and you're trying to fight for your freedom and, and your innocence, but that'll take a toll on your mind. And, and, and how did you cope with it? Any learning new skills you learned? You learn. You learn when to <laughs> keep your mouth shut and when not to. Basically, uh, when you see things happening, you don't don't report it. Uh, you just, you know, you know, you can see people stabbing each other or, you know, guys getting raped and whatever. You don't say anything. You just, you know, you just sort of, you see it, but you can't tell anybody, you know, and then you just have to sort of uh, wipe it out of your mind, pretend you didn't see it. In reality, you know you saw what you saw. And then you also have to sort of treat the person who did the act as if nothing happened and they were decent human beings and everybody had to treat everybody respectfully and look at them and speak to them, you know, respectfully. Or else, you know, you would get risk of being targeted. Uh, I learned the hard way by looking at one guy. Apparently, I looked at him the wrong way. I mean, I don't know. I was on the phone, and, and he was walking by, and apparently, I, I glanced at him. But he turned back and said, why are you, you know, you're looking at me the wrong way, and he came and assaulted me. You know, thankfully, everybody else came to sort of protect me, you know. At the end of the day, I was sort of one of the older guys there. And then they all sort of saw me as a father figure. A lot of these guys didn't have fathers in their life. Or if they had one, it wasn't a very, you know, a healthy relationship. And so here I'm treating everybody respectfully. And, and I was one of the most educated guys there. So people always come to me with their problems. And I would answer them as truthfully. So I developed a relationship with being a respectful, older kind of guy. You know, a lot of people thought that, no, that didn't belong there. And they were sort of, some of them were rooting for me. And some would say, just, you know, make a deal so you can get out of here. So you don't have to spend the rest of your time in jail. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't sort of respect because I treated everybody respectfully, regardless of the crimes they committed. But I also respected the rules of the prison. That's how I survived. And um, being away from your children, too, I mean, in being in prison and not having really no, no contact, it must have been, must be hard in your mind. I mean, I, I, I don't see my son for a few days because I share 50-50 custody with my son's mother, but five days is enough horrible for me. But I couldn't imagine your situation. How did you deal with it? Two ways. One one was that until time of my second trial, my retrial, my family um, was able to at least fight to get visitation, supervised visitation, usually either once a week, once every two weeks. And I would live, I would live my life through them from what they told me. Oh yes, I saw your son, I saw your daughter. Oh, he's she's gotten tall, he's gotten heavier, and they would tell me all the stuff that they would tell. You know, the kids told my parents or my cousin. And so I would live my I would live 
being a father through their eyes and through their experiences, through what they told me about it. It still kills me that, you know, I couldn't see them. I couldn't touch them. I couldn't. In the beginning, they were allowing me, while I wouldn't get out on bail, to exchange letters with them. And I still have. I was checking my letters last night because I'm, I'm scanning them and sending them to my uh, screenplay writer who's making a movie based on my experience. And it's heartbreaking when you have a letter that your kid drew in crayon, I love you, Dad, because you're the best dad in the world. So at least I had that when I was waiting out to get out on bail. But when I got out on bail, the conditions were no contact whatsoever with your kids because they are now you know, primary witnesses to the murder of you know, their mother. And so since I got my release from jail from bail until now, you know, I have no, and it's been uh, 12 years now, I have no contact with my kids. No direct contact whatsoever, you know, with Johnny. Oh wow, that, that has, kills me. That has to be horrible. That's that must be a horrible experience. I was just wondering, once you uh, were released from prison, how did you repair your relationships, your personal relationships, your work relationships? How did you go about doing that? And what what kind of life after coming out of prison did you have? You know, my story was shared all over the media, and it wasn't only in Canada, but the U.S. I mean, I have friends in New York who said it made the New York Times. And so through the media, my 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 name was cleared that, I, you know, I was acquitted. I wasn't responsible. Well, yeah, legally, I wasn't responsible. I wasn't, you know, responsible at all for, 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 you know, what happened. But the thing is, I just did a recent poll and focus in, and sorry, a couple of polls, a couple of focus groups because my publisher and my screenwriter and producer in Hollywood wants to know what people really feel, uh, you know, about the story. So we will give out copies of, you know, advanced copies of the book. And do you know the response that we got back looking at the focus groups and polls, surveys, that one in three people still feel that I am guilty? And that, you know, either I got away with it or now I, need to, I know I should have put in, you know, gone into, uh, you know, rehabilitation. And it's, it's heartbreaking when it's one in three people still believe that you're guilty, regardless of what the outcome was at the second trial, regardless of the evidence, regardless of my rights, my legal rights. And so it, it affects me uh, because I'm more guarded. Right? So when I interact with people, I'm more guarded. I always have the doubt with me. He's one of the three people who think that uh, I'm so guilty and I got out of way and I got away with it. It's heartbreaking when we have some people still call you, you know, oh, you're, you're not different from O.J. Simpson. And yet the difference between me and O.J. Simpson are completely different. I call the police right away when I need the help from my wife, whereas he hasn't. I was injured badly the day that, you know, children's mother died. Whereas OJ wasn't. And yet they have America call me Canada's OJ Simpson. And it's just another example of the, the sort of, you know, oh, there's a husband and wife sort of conflict that the husband, you know, is always responsible. Worse, it's worse if you are a man of color or a man of a different ethnicity or ethnicity or race. It's worse. It, it's heartbreaking. I, you know, as a result, I had no future in Canada whatsoever. None. None. I was given a severance package, okay, from my employer. Here you go. We don't want you back. You're a hot political potato. Get out. You know, here's your money. Sorry. Get out. Go for, you know, and then I had decided, okay, fine. The fact that I'm legally able to live and work in, 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 work in the United States, even though I was born in Canada, because I left there since 1976, I said, fine, I'm going to take my money and invest it somewhere in America. I'm going to go back to my home state of New York, and then, you know, start working for myself. 
what I did. I started my own business where I purchased historic homes, renovated, restored them, rent them out for a bit, and then sell them. And that's how I make my living now. Because there's no future for me in Canada. And, and then I didn't know what, what other prospects I had in the United States because the back of my mind, some of these people in the focus groups and surveys and polls were American. So, but you know what? I have to give credit to the two-thirds of the people that still see and still consider me to be in giving me opportunities. What was it like when you got that email from your wife's family? You know, it was reassuring because it was proof that they knew the truth because they were not happy with the uh, autopsy report given to them by the police, which said that she died of, you know, it was inconclusive, but highly likely that she died of foul play. And yet when they wanted to find out, well, what is it? What, what do we write down on the death certificate, you know, cause of death? And so they did their own autopsy report. Their guy, their pathologist said, it looks like she died, okay, of, uh, you know, cardiac arrest, you know, secondary to respiratory failure. And it's true, she had asthma, it's true. And it shouldn't have in the heart condition, it's called the Bugatta syndrome. Mm-hmm. She also had asthma. And so when she was fighting me, she overexerted herself and caused herself to go into cardiac arrest and die. It happened so fast that, you know, I didn't know what was going on because one going on was freaking out. But the fact that they took the time to go and clarify for themselves how she died, then they realized that I didn't commit murder. And they also know that she was very aggressive. They also know that, you know, since growing up, she was a bully in the neighborhood. She was a bully in school. And, and, and you know, and she was always being called, you know, the past always being called to the principal's office. They knew what her character. And so here they are trying to tell the police, don't make this guy go for this. Don't prosecute him. Don't mean not to go get him to go into trial or anything. And they didn't listen. The police and the prosecutor didn't listen. And, uh, and still, on their causes on, on the pathology report here, on, also on the, on the death certificate here, they left it blank. When it's a cause of death, it's blank. They didn't even fill it out. They waited for, they waited for my family to cremate the body so now there's no further evidence that they, they can't do another autopsy report. They can't. The body's cremated. But the family knew. And they, not only that, they want to come and apologize to me. But the prosecutor of police said, no, there's been no contact order between, you know, Jim and, you know, the, the family, you know, your in-laws, you know. And so I, I didn't even get this apology letter for one year after they sent it. Because, and I had to fight. I had to fight in court with my lawyer to have access to all the records. And all of a sudden, I see this printout of an email that was sent to the social workers and the police officer, the investigative police officer, that they wanted to come and apologize to me in person and tell me with their blessing, give me their blessing to have custody of the children because they knew I was very close to them. The kids loved me more. They bothered with me more because the children's mother was not part of their life, not as much as she should have been. And the, and the small amount of time that she was, she was very aggressive and abusive towards me. For the family to come forward and tell me, I'm sorry, I want to apologize, and I want you to have the kids, because that's in the best interest of the kids. But that was reassuring. And that gave me, that was one of the things that made me want to fight forward, move forward to the state. But it was very frustrating because the prosecutor and the police and everybody else didn't want that to happen. Well, you mentioned um, about what's, um, about a movie coming out, a screenplay, and your new book coming out in May. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. I'll start with the movie first because I just spoke to my screenplay writer in Los Angeles. <laughs> and there's so many ways you can sort of 
you know, take you know, take the angle of the movie, right? Because the book is very it's very thick. It's about uh, a little over six hundred pages. So the book itself is again, uh, it's sort of because it has been in the capital city of a country. There's a lot of politics involved between you know uh, gender politics and so you know and mentality adopted, and like I said before, between men and women. And then there's a politics of going on between you know left and right, how people on the left think the best thing for children are to be taken care of by the government, whereas people on the right say no, it's a family, you know, and community. And so it goes into that. But the but Hollywood wasn't interested in that. They didn't want the political aspects of it. They wanted the story between me and my father and me and my kids. And in fact, this and they didn't they didn't they didn't want to go uh, talk about the murder trial. They said no. It's been done so many times. Let's focus about this guy. This is part of the story of the book. You've got a guy who lost his kid, and now he's doing everything now, even though he's been acquitted and exonerated, now never given a formal apology or any compensation, who's on his mission. On his mission to go tell everybody his story and how much he loves and misses his kids and wants his kids back in their life some capacity or another. And that's the focus of the movie, and that was part of the book. But like I said, there are other elements of the book. That's the part that Hollywood wants to focus on. Well, um, final thoughts. I want to think of um, what would you leave with, with a dad, you know, to another dad, another father, who um, doesn't spend much time with the kids and, and let them know how important it is to spend time with your children because you never know when you may not have a chance to. Exactly right. Because you never know. You never know when they'll be taken away from you, whether it's by their mother or by the government. You never know. It's a shame. It really is a shame because, you know, the effects, the effects of children that are taken away from their father is so widespread. It's in every survey that's been done, every research that's been done in the world, whether it's United States or Canada or England or Australia, everywhere, everywhere, the results are always the same, okay? It's important to have a father in a child's life because studies have shown when children are taken away from their father, they end up living in lower socioeconomic conditions. When they grow older, they can be homeless, they can be runaways. You know, half the time, they don't even make it you know, to finish uh, their high school or they never go to university or college or even a trade school. They become highly unemployed. They become, you know, fathers at an early age. 75% of the time, they become fathers at an early age. 80% of the time, they get in trouble with the law and end up being in jail. You know, and then they get further poisoned by hardened criminals. You know, and they recruit them. You wouldn't believe how many times I was recruited by people in gangs, organized crime, and gangsters, and even the radical terrorists. It's not an environment you want your kids to be in. No. And especially when you're young, and they don't have that capacity to resist. They'd be easily, easily sucked into that kind of lifestyle. You don't want that. Half the time, these kids that are taken away from their fathers, they develop the clinical depression, poor overall mental health, physical health. They get addictions of some sort, you know, with the drugs, alcohol, whatever, gambling, whatever it is. They tend to die at a younger age compared to other men who are fathers, involved fathers. And so, these, and generally, these guys, you know, who don't have fathers in their lives, you know, girls, even, even daughters, the antisocial, they lack confidence in themselves, they engage in risky behavior, they don't have self-control. They're doing all that. They're doing all this addiction stuff and all this trying to get attention and stuff. Sort of numb the pain of not having a father in their lives. You know, and they, sometimes they think that the father abandoned them. It's not maybe that it is true. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's circumstances like myself where I didn't abandon my kids. They were just taken away from me. But in their mind, these kids think I abandoned them. They don't understand why I'm not in their lives anymore. I think that will have a long-term effect maybe down the road when they when 
when they become parents? It is. It does affect the way you parent. It does. I mean, I can tell you, because I know from my own father, my own father always felt that his mother was not emotionally attached to him. And he felt that because my father was very strict, he never accepted my father for the way he is. Because my father always had sort of a jokey kind of personality, mm-hmm. never serious. You know, it's the fact that, but thankfully, thankfully, my, um, his grandfather stepped to the plate and took on that role of father. And so it sort of, sort of mitigated and took care of, you know, some of the issues my father had with his own parents. But, you know, can we really uh, trust the social care, care you know, the, the, the foster care system to do that for our kids? We can't. Can we afford, you know, we have no idea what kind of um, a man, uh, you know, their, their mother's going to be involved, what kind of parent, parental figure that is. He may not be the greatest dad to parent your kids. It's important for, you know, kids, you know, to have their biological father in their lives in any capacity possible. It's important. Because what we're doing, what we're doing is we're creating a cycle. So, you know, we're creating a cycle where now we have these kids who become dysfunctional adults who end up being in the criminal court system. They have kids early. Their kids go to the foster care system and it becomes a vicious cycle that we can never get out of. Let's break the cycle. That's what it is. Break the cycle. Yeah, be right. a better, Step up. That's be right. better parents, better dads, better moms. Um, anybody have any that's questions right. or any or want to hear more about your story? I know the book's coming out in May. And where they can connect with you? Yeah, so it's a delay because of the virus by about a month, but that's understandable. I mean, we're all going through uh, this uh, virus issue with uh, delays by about a month, if not more. But the best way to get a hold of me is social media. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, uh, you know, and I, and I answer. Every time someone sends me, like, a private message on Facebook, for example, you know, I answer it. I, I, get, I, get, I, I get advice, you know, from strangers. You know, they ask me, so they come to me for advice. They come and ask me, okay, I'm a tenant. What are my tenant rights? You know, now, for example, now, it goes, look, they just passed a law, you know, in New York State where, you know, you can have a bit of a grace period once you pay your rent. Your, your, your rent. Can, my, can my landlord still evict me? Mm-hmm. Because I know about the rental property business. I answer them right away. You know, same thing. People ask me for relationship advice. <laughs> and, and I give it to them. You know, and so social media is the best way to get a hold of me. Okay, I'm on Facebook. If you just type the name Jim or Jimmy Angelis, A-N-G-E-L-I-S, you'll find me on Facebook, you'll find me on Twitter, you'll find me on, on Instagram. And then I always keep people up to date about what's going on with my book and my movie. Thanks, Jim. And thank you very much for being on the podcast today, Jim. I really do appreciate All links will be in the show notes. Please pass on the link of when the book comes to Amazon or wherever the book will be sold. And I will definitely share the link with the audience. Thanks so much, Joseph. I appreciate it. Wrapping up with this episode, I want to thank Demetrius Angels, Jim Angels, for being a part of the podcast. You can find more about him over in his social media links, um, his Facebook page, and all the rest of the social media links will be linked in the show notes. You can find more about me over this episode over at nosittingonthesideline.com slash 92. And you can find more about me, my content information at nocityonthesideline.com slash contact. Hey, leave a comment if any question about the story. Oh, I just want to say hello. I always want to hear what you're doing. It really, really means a lot to me that you take time to listen. You got this far. I really do appreciate it. I want to thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Give your kids a hug. Tell them much you love them. Seriously. You know, it's important. God bless. See ya.